Welcome to Valley Baptist University, an online ministry of Valley Baptist Church where we seek to worship God with all our minds. I'm Eric Hahn, Dean of VBU. This segment is part six on the subject Christianity versus the new spirituality or sometimes called progressive Christianity. Today we explore the question, are there no intended gender distinctions? Hey everyone, glad you've come back to this series. This is session number six on Christianity versus the new spirituality. Have you ever heard someone say, I could just never be a Christian because Christians hate homosexuals. Or someone might say, we all know that Christians are bigoted against the transgender community. Now, right off like many slogan or meme type statements, so often you see that the terms aren't really defined. So one question that might get asked is how is hatred even being defined. What you'll often see, I think, is that there seems to be a conflation between the idea of hatred with disagreement. And you could even describe this maybe as a false dilemma. You can either agree or you're hateful. So we've been on this series, Christianity versus the New Spirituality, and we're looking today at a very hot button subject. And I'm calling the title of this, Are There No Intended Gender Distinctions? Now, before we start, I want to give you some disclaimers. Right off, no matter who's listening to this, some of the subjects here are going to be a little bit PG-13. So if you have kids in the room or in the car, you might want to take that into consideration. At the same time, you might be somebody who is either part of the LGBTQ community, or you might have a family member or a close friend that's part of that community. Something that I really want to encourage is to maybe put your trigger on safety for just a little while and at least give this a fair hearing. I want to encourage you to think in terms of hatred and disagreement not being synonymous. There's so many things as professing Christians that we would disagree with, but that we would not consider ourselves hateful about. And we would include this with that. In fact, what you're going to find in social media is a lot of triggering images and people. There's even a church that calls themselves Baptist that shows up at funerals with signs and megaphones. I can attest with all honesty, I don't know anybody in not only our church, but any church I've ever been a part of that I would even consider capable of doing that. In fact, sometimes we pigeonhole the Christian community in such a way that we say that, that it's all hateful and we know that. There's actually a book that challenges that. It's a sociologist at the University of Connecticut. He wrote a book called Christians Are Hate-Filled Hypocrites and Other Lies, We've Been Told. He actually has a lot of documentation that says that what people commonly think of because of social media triggers about Christians are actually not even true. The data doesn't even show that. So when I look at this, I know that there are people that would come from an affirming mindset about homosexual practice and various gender ideas that would differ from a biblical Christian view. 
But one of the things I also want to say as a disclaimer, what we're looking at here is not people coming at this from all views, but mainly from the view of the new spirituality, which is the series we've been on. Often this overlaps with progressive Christianity or the subjects that people tend to deconstruct into from Christianity. Starting off, just a common example. I'm not picking on this person. I didn't choose her because she is different. But what I chose her from is just a representative of a big group of people. So there's an online spiritualist. Her name is Serena Jade. And Serena Jade has a website. On her website, it says Serena Jade's vision is to bridge the gap between the material and the spiritual. A perfect example of what we've been looking at with the new spirituality, in her case, she would classify herself new age. This is that oneism spirituality. God is one with all of reality. Now, Serena Jade denotes her mission as being motivating people on the spiritual path towards self-knowledge. And she even has a client testimonial, a satisfied client who says, Serena will guide you towards that rare gift that is a true encounter with your divine self. There is this idea that God is one with all of reality, when we seek God, we seek the divine within. But then she goes on to say on her YouTube channel, asking a question, do you have the courage to usher in an androgynous society? Now, people might differ on what the word androgynous means, but it comes from the Greek andros and the Greek word gyne, which means male and female. And somebody might categorize it as nothing more than a fashion statement, like dressing like David Bowie. Somebody might say, this is like breaking down certain stereotypes. Men can be into music and women can like sports. But breaking down those stereotypes is not necessarily a non-Christian or bad thing. However, the site actually defines for us what is meant by androgynous. And here's what it says. Androgyny is a mirror reflection of the transcendent condition that transcends the inevitable specificities of life, such as mortal and mortal, in other words, the monism of creator and creation, all is one, it transcends the specificities or the distinction of good and evil. We're going to look at that in the next segment. But for this segment's sake, it says it transcends the distinctions or specificities of male and female. In other words, being androgynous means that you transcend the distinction or specificities of male and female. So here's an example where we see the new spirituality or even progressive Christianity as a spiritual worldview overlapping with ideas about sexuality and gender. In other words, God and nature are all one, oneism, no distinction, and therefore male and female is one, no distinction. That's androgyny, all is one, or all is one within countless different manifestations. The opposition position of this is what's sometimes called binary, male and female being binary. And people who hold this position would say, you Christians, uh, you're too binary. 
Now, although this is very controversial and questionable, even from a biblical Christian view, or even in secular circles, to get us up to date on this, at one time when people were still thinking in terms of male and female, even from a secular position, there was a pioneer, his name was Harry Benjamin, and he pioneered treating people with cosmetic surgery who considered themselves, say, having a male brain in a female's body. But even that era affirmed two genders. They affirmed male and female. And as of today, that's being opposed as being oppressive because it's too binary. If you think back or look back to the 90s, and I remember being a pastor in the 90s, homosexual promotion and even activism would use the born this way argument. Now concerning this, there's a biblical response that we're all bent towards sin. And instead of accommodating that, we seek Jesus who says you must be born again. Paul says we're new creations in Christ. But even this born this way pushback is now being considered bigoted because born this way is now considered too dependent on physical or biological verification. In other words, the science is being proven to be very inconclusive on this. So born this way has now often become identifies this way. So in the new spirituality, you identify your gender based on your subjective, personal, or even spiritual experience. Now, take a breath. We're gonna look at a lot of resources and a lot of background on this as we go and trace this from not just history, but the history of the new spirituality. And then we look at a biblical worldview response. So there's gonna be a string of sources. So get you a sip of coffee, put your thinking cap on. Michael Foucault was a French philosopher. He wrote an influential book. It's called The History of Sexuality. Michael Foucault was a practicing homosexual, but even he admitted that at least in the modern era, homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy into a kind of interior androgyny. In other words, he says the sodomite had been a temporary aberration, but the perspective was that the homosexual was a new species. So here's this idea of the interior androgyny, where somebody is internally, not outwardly, physically, but internally coming to a place of identity. And this fits the new spiritualist view. We've talked about June Singer. June Singer was a disciple of Carl Jung, a oneist spiritualist. She was even at Carl Jung's side when he died, and she wrote in her 1976 book, Androgyny Toward a New Theory of Sexuality, that the coming spiritual age was also the sexual age of androgyny. In other words, a conflation of the male and female genders into one person. Somebody that many have heard of, not a lot of people quote from her anymore, but her ideas remain, the new spiritualist Shirley MacLaine. She said, know that you are God, know that you are the universe. There's that oneist idea. 
but she described her higher self, discovering herself in the divine within, as a person who, quote, is in the form of a very tall, overpoweringly competent, almost androgynous human being. In fact, McLean in her book, Going Within, says that she considers that the point of life, all of life, is to balance both the masculine and the feminine in ourselves to express ourselves for what we truly are, androgynous, a perfect balance. Now, this actually intersects with something personally in my own life. When I graduated from college, somebody that I knew in college who was struggling and then went on to do some deconstruction and deconversion in his own life, he came to embrace a new spirituality version of Christianity. And he actually was a contributor to a magazine. And magazine with the individual known as Fox, the new creation spirituality, he sent me an article that he wrote on male spirituality that quoted Gnostic sources. And he wrote it specifically to me to say, Eric, if you're gonna discover your true self, you need to discover the female side. You need to discover the divine female within. And so this is how the spirituality of progressive Christianity, of the New Age movement intersects with both the homosexual and the transgender community. Let's go back to June Singer. June Singer says the archetype of androgyny appears in us as an innate sense and a witness to the primordial cosmic unit. That is, it is the sacrament. Notice the religious terms. It's the sacrament of monism, which means oneism, functioning to erase distinction. And then she goes on to say, she says, begrudgingly, nearly totally expunging from the Judeo-Christian tradition. In other words, she says begrudgingly, it's a real bummer that the Judeo-Christian tradition has taken away this unity because we have taken away this unity of, of the androgynous. And so as a Christian believer, as a Christian believer, and I hope this is what you would expect us to come from, you hear in the word Christian, Christian. So what I'm attempting to give you is a Christian view of God and what the scripture teaches about our identity and our sexuality. So Singer begrudging the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a reason she begrudges that is because the Judeo-Christian tradition has historically had a different doctrine of God. So the distinctions of the Christian doctrine of God can play out like this, and if you're not careful as a Christian, you can get deceptively drawn into this idea. In fact, there's a straw man argument that's commonly used. And I read this in the progressive Christian books. They will mock Christians with the accusation, well, those people who believe in God as some bearded old man. Ha ha, we don't believe God is a bearded old man. Well, 
Actually, I don't either. <laughs> In fact, that's not the biblical Christian view. Now, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity becoming man. Jesus is fully God, fully man incarnate, and remains as such in a glorified male body. However, God the Father as a man with male body parts, whether it's a beard or whether it's with male sexual organs, that's actually not biblical Christianity. That's Mormonism. Now you look at the scriptures in John 4, 24, Jesus taught that God the Father is spirit. The Bible also teaches that man and woman are made in his image. However, God himself technically is neither male nor female. However, God is certainly not both male and female. So the new spirituality says you Christians believe that there's this man with a beard, etc. But God is both male and female. The biblical view is no. God is spirit. Technically, neither male nor female, but he's also not androgynous. I don't seek the God within to discover the female dynamic of God because God is not male nor female. God is spirit, but God in the Bible reveals his character to us through masculine titles and sometimes feminine metaphors. So Jesus wants to grab, grab the Jerusalem and, and Israelites like a mother hen grabs the chicks. And then we have these titles like King and Lord and Father. Those reflect to us the character of God that we also need to be very careful about not changing. So the author Paul Young of The Shack and the character that's the father appears as a mother. She says, I'm appearing to you as a mother to get you out of your religious conditioning. Well, not only the Bible, but Jesus himself taught us to pray Father. He says, when you pray, say, our Father. And he uses that term Father 165 times in the gospel. So there's a reason for these masculine illustrations, but God is not technically male or female. He's not male and female, but importantly, God created male and female. So when you go to the Bible, Genesis 1:27, it says, so God created man or mankind in his own image. The first thing that that teaches is that mankind is not God. God created mankind. There's a famous spiritualist who said, I had this breakthrough discovery when I discovered that I was as old as God. For one thing, that's a categorical error. God is not old, God is eternal. There's a difference. But the other error he makes is that he is not a pre-existing entity like God. Instead, all of humanity is created and we had a beginning. My beginning was in 1966. I'm like Vans. I've been off the wall since 1966. 
That's when I began to exist. I'm not as old as God or I don't have no beginning like God. But God created and he created me. I began in 1966. God created me male. Just like it says in Genesis, he created them male and female. Now, when you look at the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek words for male and female, when you study the etymology of that, you're going to have a hard time not concluding that the etymology of these words even relate to human anatomy. In the Hebrew, it talks about the male meaning literally piercing and the female could be translated as like hole or cavity. This is like the birds and the bees. In the New Testament, the word for female actually has to do with the female anatomy of being able to breastfeed. This is God's plan. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, For Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Adam said, Now this, the woman, is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's an inference to marriage and sexual practice. Somebody says, that's just that old, Old Testament with that old, angry God. Actually, Jesus, coming from a Christian perspective, remember, I'm a Christian. Jesus Christ quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 twice. It's in both Matthew 19 and Mark 10, and it's in the context of God's plan for marriage. In fact, concerning this plan for sexual expression, people have been trying to disassemble this for generations. What does marriage mean? What do genders mean? How should or shouldn't people be expressing sexuality? If you go to just a purely atheist view, and that's not mainly what we're focusing on, but the atheist says, in essence, there is no God. All is material. It's physicalism. And so whatever expression brings the most physical, consensual pleasure, then thumbs up. Representative of this, somebody who died in the 1950s, very well-read report, Alfred Kinsey. Many people in their textbooks have Alfred Kinsey report that says, and when you read in those textbooks, what you find is an attempt to normalize all kinds of different sexual expressions. A lot of people don't realize that the same person who accumulated data, much of it was spurious, but the same person that accumulated data that many of us ground the idea of the normalcy of homosexual expression was also trying to ground in his data the normalcy of pedophilia and bestiality. Now you can look this up, you can try to, to manipulate this. Go to Wardell Pomeroy, Kinsey and the Institute for Sex Research. He says Kinsey was rationalizing the naturalness and therefore the normalcy of homosexual acts as well as pedophilia and bestiality. That means sexual expression with animals.
He was an outspoken advocate of adult child sex. In each of these cases, Kinsey saw the problem not as the behavior itself, but in society's negative reaction to it. In other words, Kinsey said, you're against adult child sex? Stop being such a hateful bigot. So if you study Alfred Kinsey, who is cited in many of our textbooks, you're going to find this trajectory in what he was trying to accomplish. First off, he was trying to accomplish the normalization of all kinds of heterosexual expression, meaning promiscuity of every kind, multiple partners, group experience, it's all good. Then he was trying to normalize all kinds of homosexual expression. Then he was trying to normalize transgender expression or transvestite expression. What a lot of people don't realize is that he went as far as to trying to normalize pedophilia expression, even through research. Now, when we stop there and ask, you say, Eric, you're just using the fallacy of slippery slope, am I? Because right now, we are trying to defang the idea of pedophilia and make it more acceptable. There are professors and others who are trying to purport minor attracted persons called MAPS. In fact, if you go to the MAPS website, I just looked at it yesterday, it says MAPS are people who have an orientation based on gender, and just like people who are attracted to adults, MAPS do not choose to be attracted to children, and minor attraction cannot be changed. There's also the longtime association called NAMBLA. NAMBLA stands for North American Man-Boy Love Association. This is what Kinsey was trying to promote, and he has already succeeded in the normalization of this to some degree. As a matter of fact, Alfred Kinsey was going so far as to attempt to normalize bestiality expression of sexuality. You see, so the atheist just says it's all time plus matter plus chance. We're all physical. Whatever brings sensual pleasure, and it doesn't matter even if it's human or if it's human to animal. Now, we've looked at what the atheist says. The spiritualist says, no, it's not all physical. It's not all matter. In fact, all is one spiritually. So through subjective experience, we transcend the distinctions, the specificities. And then we come to accept a more androgynous or fluid expression of gender and sexuality. Now, we've looked at what the atheist says, we've looked at what the spiritualist says, but what does Jesus say? I once gave a presentation that I was invited to to public high school counselors. They wanted to know what different religious denominations taught on certain subjects in order for them to be able to counsel their young people adequately. And I will give them credit, they were respectful. But when I got on to the subjects that we're talking about here, there was an underlying gasp. I can't believe somebody in our midst is saying these things, but I prefaced it with, I want you to know, God bless you, I am a Christian. So hopefully it would not you hear the word Christ and Christian, hopefully it would not be a surprise that I would go with what Christ teaches as a Christian. I found it interesting that virtually nobody in the room had thought 
that Jesus taught about these subjects. There's this bifurcation that people have, Bible bad, Jesus good, God bad, Jesus good, Old Testament bad, New Testament, Jesus good, loving. But in Matthew 19, also in the book of Mark, Jesus says in verse four, have you not read he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, and then two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Several inferences from this and some things directly taught. One inference is Jesus describes sexual intimacy as intended for marriage. Now, this is inferred in this passage, but Jesus says it directly in Mark 7, 21. Jesus says, from within, out of the heart of people, humankind, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. Fornications, where we get the English word pornography from the Greek pornia. It includes, as you go through any extended Greek study, all kinds of sexual practices out, outside of marriage, including adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, even premarital sex. You might remember the Christmas story that Joseph sought to put away Mary, why was that? He was assuming that she was pregnant because she committed fornication, which is sex prior to marriage. Now, Jesus doesn't just infer things about fornication, but when Jesus says that sexual practices for marriage, Jesus defines what marriage is. You'll notice in this text, Jesus said God created them male and female. So Jesus tells us what the gender is intended for marriage. It's intended for male and female. Jesus didn't say, or however you identify, Jesus didn't say homosexual. He didn't say, or if, if you happen to be gender fluid. Jesus is very clear about that. He's not only clear about male and female, though, and the gender. He's clear also about number. Jesus said, the two shall become as one flesh. In other words, Jesus' definition of marriage excludes polyamory being more than two. Right now we have people that are trying to petition to have group marriages, two men, three women, four women, one guy, all these different ideas. And Jesus says, no, from the beginning, it was two. Somebody says, oh, but the Bible doesn't teach that. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. One of the things I wanna say very clearly that I say to people about this, we're not Solomonians, we're Christians. And so the Bible records things that it doesn't prescribe. Jesus said was not so from the beginning. He says marriage is two. Two even means that marriage is not one. And you say, Eric, what are you talking about? If you go to a sexual defining category online, you'll find people that call themselves autoromantic or autosexual, which is defined as being oriented to romance or sexually attracted with yourself. So think of it this way. As a Christian pastor, I would not perform a wedding 
of a male to a male or a female to a female. As a Christian pastor, I would not perform a wedding of two guys to three gals because God said the gender is male and female. God says the number is two. I also would not perform a wedding between a person and his or herself because two is even different than one. Also, the Bible infers the subject of age. Jesus says, man shall leave father and mother. The leaving and cleaving means that you should be able to be on your own without your parent, so it doesn't include children. In fact, it doesn't use the Hebrew or the Greek for children when it talks about marriage in both the Old and the New Testament. Here's another inference that we probably don't think about a lot, but the other inference about marriage is about species. Jesus' man shall leave a father and mother and cleave to his wife. So it's talking about humans. It's not talking about humans and animals. Now, I know people say, you, you Christians, you use this slippery slope argument and there is no way we're ever gonna see you realize that in the 90s, I heard this about homosexual marriage. I heard people saying that we will never see that normalized. A lot of people forget that there was actually a political leader who wasn't always the greatest friend to the evangelical Christian community who tried to sign a federal ban against same-sex marriage in the 90s. That was actually Bill Clinton. It's amazing how much our public ideas, uh, affirmations, all these things are changing. They're changing at the speed of sound. In 2006, a South Sudanese man named Charles Tombe was forced to marry a goat with which he was caught engaging in sexual activity. In 2005, an American man ordained with the Universal Life Church married several humans to their pets. In 2014, right here in California, we had our first legal marriage between a man and his dog. In San Francisco, there was an ordained minister, and the ordained minister said that this committed love represents marriage more than anything I can think of. So we've looked at several very clear conditions that Jesus puts on marriage. The other one is duration. And Jesus says, what God has brought together, let not man separate. So God's plan is human beings, male and female, two for a lifetime. Now, as you look at how public opinion on these subjects have changed, very quickly you look at transgenderism and the way that transgenderism was described in an Oxford dictionary, and it goes down to talk about that it's a gender identity disorder. As you look at more recent definitions, you find in the Webster Dictionary that a transgender person is someone who identifies with or expresses a gender identity. You notice how we're moving from not only biology to psychology, but from biology to psychology to just identity. For generations, and I still hear this today, in fact, I've seen signs in communities that say, 
We are pro-LGBTQ and we believe science is real. What's interesting about that is much of what we're hearing now is actually pushing against biological science. There's very little empirical research that can say that what someone identifies as is what they are biologically, or in some case, even psychologically. Walt Heyer is somebody who did extensive research on this. Walt Heyer thought he was a woman on the inside and so had transitional surgery to become a woman. He ended up regretting it. He became a believer in Christ and then had surgery to transition back. And he makes this statement. He says, let's acknowledge that being asked to believe a surgeon with a scalpel can change someone's gender is the greatest medical fraud of our lifetime. Not only do our common ideas these days, particularly in the realm of spirituality, transcend biology and science, but they even transcend chronology. I want to show you a picture. This is Stephanie Walsh. Stephanie Walsh is not only a male who identifies as a female, but Stephanie Walsh is a 52-year-old biological male who left his family to identify as a six-year-old girl. As we look at that and ask ourselves, is affirming this love, or we might ask, is affirming this enablement? Again, people say hate, and they don't define hatred. People say, well, if Christians are just going to be loving because God is love. How do we define love? One way to look at love is that love doesn't enable destructive behavior. To illustrate this, one of the founding medical clinics, John Hopkins Medical, was pioneering with doing transition surgeries. They're arguably the first hospital clinic in the United States to found a gender identity clinic. Well, eventually Paul McHugh became the curator of the hospital and he looked at the data. He said, let's re-examine the pros and cons of what we're doing with these sex change operations. In fact, he went on to say with the facts in hand, I included that Hopkins was fundamentally cooperating with a mental illness. He says, we psychiatrists would do better to concentrate on trying to fix minds as opposed to genitalia. As far as my understanding goes, Johns Hopkins Medical Center to this day does not perform medical transition sex change operations anymore. Kind of as another side note, there's a lot of talk about how having a fluidity idea about genders will oppose the male cultural abuses, the male patriarch abuses. Now, I'm not gonna say that there haven't been male abuses. There certainly have, and there certainly are. What's happening right now, though, is that even feminists who are not biblical Christian believers are discovering that this androgynous worldview is not merely a threat to the male gender, it's also a threat to the female gender. In fact, getting rid of the binary in affirmation of androgyny or countless versions of, of what gender is interpreted as is actually becoming an assault on women's rights. 
How can women have rights if we can't even define what a woman is? All you have to do is look at sports and biological men and swimming and track who are just dominating and taking over those sports where we used to have an attitude of a league of, of their own. Who are the they? We're talking about women. Now, in the midst of all this, thank you for sticking with me in the midst of this thick forest. I wanna give you some practical conclusions for Bible-believing Christians. One thing I wanna say is our inclinations and impulses are not necessarily chosen, but we do have a choice of whether or not we will follow through into sin. We find this in a number of different places in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation is overtaking you except as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. From a Christian worldview, if somebody says to us, I'm actually a girl trapped in a guy's body, a better response would be to say, in love, I'm sorry you're going through this, but no, we would consider you to be a guy who's struggling with confused feelings. Walt Heyer, again, who's been back and forth on this, he says sex changes don't actually change a person's sex. They're actually attempts to accommodate confused feelings. Something else I believe we can say as Bible-believing Christians, our inclinations and impulses don't have to define us. And this applies to anybody and anybody of any sexual persuasion. A heterosexual man could say, well, you need to understand, I'm a polyamorous man trapped in a monogamous marriage. Somebody else could say, I'm a sexually amorous child trapped in an adult body. He says, I'm chronologically displaced. Well, see, this is making identity become our entire being. Even the practicing homosexual says, we, we have not always done this in history. Michael Foucault, the French philosopher, said prior to the 19th century, he said, category invention of sexual orientation, he says, no one's sexual practice or sexual desire prescribed personhood or defined their personal identity. As Christians, it certainly shouldn't define us. In 1 Corinthians 6, it talks about all kinds of sins. It talks about heterosexual sin. It talks about homosexual sin. But he says, as such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. In other words, that was your identity, but in Christ you have a new identity. The Bible says if we're in Christ, we're new creations. Here's something else I believe that's important to say that kind of overlaps with this. Our inclinations and impulses don't have to be submitted to. In Genesis 3, there was the forbidden fruit. It correlates with what the John epistle says, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Just because we're tempted, just because we have that desire, that lust, doesn't mean we have to give in to that. We looked at 1 Corinthians 10, that God provides a way out. And in Galatians 5, 16, it says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's put this in a categorical way. 
Note that there are differences between, one thing, there's a difference between sensation and belief. In the last several days, my wife has been sick at home and she has this kind of fever that makes her have vertigo. So my wife has the sensation that the room is spinning. But my wife does not believe that the room is spinning. You don't have to believe every sensation. So somebody senses that, that they're getting in touch with their androgynous divine female. A sensation can be different than a belief. My wife trusts me that I'm her loving husband. I'm saying, you know, Cindy, the room actually isn't spinning. You're just having that sensation. When we trust a loving heavenly father, God says you're having a sensation about something. That doesn't mean it has to be your belief. That goes along with the idea there's a difference between temptation and sin. Well, somebody says, well, well I have this sensation that I need to, well, the Bible describes that as a difference between temptation and sin. And the Bible says that God does not tempt anyone. If we think God is leading us a certain path, we go to God's word and see what he tells us. He tells us that there's sinful practice, there's unsinful practice, and he doesn't tempt us to do the sinful practice. You can correlate this with feelings and follow through. There was an old saying, if it feels good, do it. I saw a bumper sticker like that one time and I almost cut the guy off the road and just ran him into a ditch because I felt like it. But see, I don't have to follow through with my feelings. And it's the same way with anything in life and certainly in our Christian walk. We can differentiate between desire and volition or even between inclination and identity. Just because I have an inclination towards something doesn't mean that I'm required to identify as that. Now, I realize the imperatives and the philosophies of our culture are overwhelming us. They're very deceiving about this. Even in some very innocuous ways, just a soft drink ad. A while back, a soft drink ad said, obey your thirst. The ad also said, thirst comes first. Well, let's compare that to a biblical worldview. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So no, I don't obey my thirsts. I obey Jesus. The ad says, thirst comes first. No, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So even though we're being bombarded with all of these imperatives and shoulds, the Bible says that we're to be set apart and not obey those things. I want to say lastly, however, that people are hurting deeply and people need Jesus and Christian love along with biblical truth. Something I've found in studying this subject over and over again, one commonality between people that are struggling in these areas is there's this deep-seated pain. If you're struggling with that, I wholeheartedly affirm what it says in Romans 12, that we rejoice with those who rejoice, but we weep with those who weep. Somebody struggling with these challenges, these desires, these dysphorias, however we want to classify it, even if somebody wants to classify it differently, it grieves my heart that somebody would feel and sense this pain in their life. And I believe that God loves you and God senses that 
as well. God knows what your pain is. But God has a plan for this to change, and the plan is not the world's plan. The plan is not the new spirituality or progressive Christianity plan. There's a testimony from somebody you might look into. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was an English and women's studies professor at the University of Syracuse. She was a practicing lesbian. After a number of years of practicing as a lesbian and thinking what a lot of people in that lifestyle would think about a Christian or about the Bible, she had a number of years of truth and love conversations with a thoughtful Christian, and she became a believer in Christ. And she is now in a heterosexual marriage and has kids from that marriage. Now, this is what she said. She said, I came to be a believer in Christ, and I came to this crossroad where I had to ask myself about my walk with Jesus and my lifestyle. And she said, I had to ask, what is bigger, my lesbian identity or God's authority over me? She said, then I had to have my hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. And she said, I needed to embrace the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of my imagination. My encouragement for you today in truth and love is to embrace the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of your imagination. And that doesn't matter wherever you are in your walk. Understanding that God loves you, he proved his love by sending Jesus to die for our sins and rise again. By repenting and believing of him, we, we have eternal life and we have abundant life the way God has planned and desired, that he will be glorified as our heavenly father, as our friend, and as our Lord and King. We'll see you next time on the subject of our morals relative. Thank you for being with us here at VBU. For further reading on this, see the book, The Other Worldview by Dr. Peter Jones, and more specifically for today's topic, the books, Paper Genders and Gender, Lies and Suicide, both by Walt Heyer. We'll see you next time for segment number seven of this series, as we entertain the question, is morality purely subjective?